Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis and New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. So are you really uh, uh, one of 10 children? I am one of 10 children, yes, from one mother and father. Well, no, actually, we've got nine. And plus, we've got an adopted brother. Oh wow! Are any of them, any of the other children, in the arts? No, unfortunately, I am the brown sheep of the family. <laughs> wow! So they're all like uh, not boring careers, like engineers and doctors and things like that. Most of them work in the care and service industry, so restaurants, nurse care, oh, wow. um, schools, taxi. So, actual superheroes. Yeah, it's. I mean, this is the amazing thing. During this whole pandemic, um, all nine of us are working. Wow, wow. Which um, and you have to be out working rather than working from home. Um, except for me, because I can do my job from home, but the rest of the eight are out on the front line, which is both. Oh heartening and terrifying at the same time yeah i can imagine how did you get uh, started in acting um that whole cliche of doing the nativity play um, so i went to a school primarily um full of british asian pakistani bangladeshi indian and i remember being cast in the school play um, in the nativity play and I played the innkeeper and I remember my sister coming to see it and she was like wow what, you're the only brown person in the in the nativity play but then I was like hang on a second the nativity play occurs in the Middle East like they're all brown <laughs> so <laughs> um, so I, I and, and then ever since then I, I had an interest of the arts um, both kind of writing and performing but never felt it would turn into a career. Now, were your parents in the audience in that first play? No, unfortunately, it took 24 years uh, for my mom to see me in a production. Wow. Was that, was that because you're fearful for, their, for what their reaction would be? Not at all. I think it's more so that we kind of grown up in this country, we, we kind of lived these weird parallel lives to our parents, whereby they kind of live these lives that are quite insular um, and, um, and not as exposed to the various cultural activities that we have. Um, and so they were never just interested, to be honest. Um, and therefore I just kind of kept that very separate from the person that they knew at home and who I was at home to them. Wow. I, I can relate to that. I can, I can relate to how uh, Bengali families are very, you almost have a home life and then you have your own social <laughs> school life going on. And you, and you kind of, you find yourself in those two places and they don't necessarily, sometimes they come into conflict, but most of the times actually you're quite happy being these two different types of personalities and living in these two different types of cultural worlds. 
It's interesting. You didn't start off acting, though, did you? You, you, your degree was in a different field altogether. It was, yeah. Um, so I studied architecture at Cambridge University. Um, yeah, completely different. Completely different. And then again, I, I must say that happened by complete accident as well because I left. Um, so I went to school at Diva. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to sixth form college together, um, and that's where we met. Uh, and uh, we were, I think we were the one of three Bengalis at the college. Um, so we became good friends um, at college. And we, whilst I was there, I did a lot of creative subjects and did a couple of drama things there. Um, and then I kind of left college and, and got a job, got three jobs actually. Um, and then I thought, I'd got my results and I thought, you know what, it would be such a loss if I didn't apply to university. So then I went back to my college and I said, look, I'd like to apply to Cambridge. And they actually laughed at me. And they said that someone like me wouldn't necessarily belong in a place like that. And so I made it my mission to prove them wrong. Um, and I got accepted and I got an unconditional offer. It's um, amazing. To study at Cambridge. I love One of our books. Yeah, Bonnie team. She, um, no, Sheen, are you on the call? Yeah, I am. Yeah, no, Sheen studies architecture. Yeah, I do. I'm actually doing my master's right now at, at Harvard doing architecture. So that's really awesome to see you doing a different career path after that. That there are more options than just being an architect with that with that degree, you know. Oh, definitely. So, are you? So, are you? Is it the same in America where you have to do part one, part two, and part three to qualify? We only have one part. I'm really glad there aren't three parts. But um, so you do your bachelor's could be in anything. Um, but it could be a B arc, which is um you you have to spend less time doing your master's but you do your master's then you get licensed and do i think 3500 hours experience hours and then you take the test um but the master's program is four years long so it's, oh, it's pretty okay. pretty long for a professional school yeah so similarly does it take seven years to qualify then seven years to qualify no only four years from your bachelor's the, the from uk, bachelor's, the UK school system really confuses me you still have to do a bachelor's yes it's so. funny because Diva, I heard Diva say that the U.S. system confuses her. So, and and we're, we're, I feel the same way about the U.K. system. It confuses me. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I suppose it's the same in the U.K. because you do a B.A., which I suppose would be equivalent to a bachelor's. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So that's three years. And then you spend another four more years doing your part two and your part three, which takes four years. So it takes seven years in total. Oh, interesting. So then for us, it takes eight years. Ah, well, there okay. you go. <laughs> wow. It's interesting because the rest of the world uses the UK system and we're, yeah. we're the only ones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and in yeah. Bangladesh, they use what? They, they're always talking about uh, O-level and A-level and I never understand what, what that means. Which is the UK system, actually. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. the O-levels um, are equivalent to the GCSEs. And then me and Kamal met when we did our A-levels, which comes after your GCSE. So you're aged around 16 to 18. Yeah. I don't know what, what time period you class that in the education system in the US. 
Yeah, and also your 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 name your your name for college is something different, right? Because in Canada, college is something very different because you you're differentiating college from university, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. So for us, um, and no shame. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure this is the same everywhere in the states. We have universities, right. uh, and within universities, there are colleges. So I went to the city, for example, I went to the city university of New York, but within that, I went to Baruch College. Uh, and then, and similarly for my master's as well. So college isn't completely different from a university. College is just within a university. Right. Oh, no. That's not the same for us at all. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Although so Cambridge did have different houses, right? Yeah, there's a college system at universities. Um, like that, Harry I think Potter. that only applies to Cambridge and Oxford. Oh. Okay. 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 So speaking of that, so yeah, so I read that your dad did not know what Cambridge uh, about Cambridge University when you were accepted. That that's no, that's he didn't, and it does still break my heart slightly that he. I remember the morning I'd got the envelope and I went down, opened it, and he was the first to be downstairs. And I was like, Dad, you're not going to do this. I got into Cambridge University, and he turned around and and he said to me, "What's that?" Wow, which, which just kind of shows that 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 kind of gulf between the world that I exist and the world that he exists in, um, which you know, no fault of his own, he kind of, you know, he came to this country in the '60s and worked in the mills, in the textile mills, for forty years, pretty much, and um, stayed within his own own community and never had that opportunity to kind of go outside of that, um, and. And, you know, the support that they gave was a kind of pastoral support at home, which, and having a loving, you know, home life, which, which, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for. So then fast forward to the end of your degree and you're at that point where you're going to start a career or do your further training, but you took a different route. I did. Just, just quickly going back to the degree. One of the reasons why actually I studied architecture was because I fell in love with the architect Louis Kahn. Now, Louis oh, Kahn, yes. Noshin, do you know him? Yes. And it, both of our last names have the same name as him, so. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I've, I actually adapted my last name um, from Louis Kahn um, because my, my family name is Hussein. Um, but after I studied um, architecture, I quite like the symmetry in the double A in the Khan, so kind of inspired by his name. Oh, um, so you legally, then, you legally changed it to Khan? So as an actor um, in the UK, if somebody's registered with your name, then you have to kind of find another name. Um, so there's already a Kamal Hussain uh, registered uh, on the spotlight. It's called the spotlight registration. And um, Interesting. And, and so because... There was already another Kamala saying they asked me what I'd like to be instead, and so I adopted Khan from Louis Khan. And the reason why I love Louis Khan was because he, so he is a Jewish American architect who designed the Houses of Parliament building in Dhaka, in Bangladesh. Even I don't know if you ever right. been. To I didn't know. Oh, I've I've been there. I've been to Dhaka and I've seen the Houses of Parliament. Yes, but I didn't know it was designed by this guy. My favorite architect, yeah, and he was one of the most groundbreakingly prolific avant-garde architect of his time and um 
and and you know he 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 was a true international architect where he designed in America all around the world and in Bangladesh several projects um, and I just love the idea of you know someone from his background um, being the son of an immigrant um, and then becoming one of the most famous architects in the world just that narrative really gripped me and so I kind of divorced myself from the architecture but was still kind of inspired by this narrative of you know being that underdog and being the son of an immigrant and kind of taking that and finding a way to platform my talent on a kind of international scale. Um, and so that's where I kind of went into um, the arts um, as in acting and, and writing. So do you think that um, that desire to, uh, to succeed and, you know, you said earlier the desire to prove someone wrong that you can make it to one of those universities do you think that's uh, do you think that comes from your parents, even though you had, you led separate lives, like you said? But do you think that desire to do that comes from your 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 dad and your parents? Oh, definitely, because you know my father sacrificed his life in Bangladesh um, to come to this country because he wanted to make a better life for you know his wife and his children. Um, because when he came over in the sixties, it was a time when the um, they were the recruiting workers from the Silet region in Bangladesh and um, so he came as part of the workforce in order to kind of rebuild the country after the Second World War um, and you know there was no there was no qualms about him leaving because he wanted to make a better life for for his wife and his children and you know they lived apart for 20 years my mom and dad um, and it was that steely determination um, that kind of saw him through and that definitely kind of distilled into into me um, because mum came to Bradford in 86, 85, sorry, um, to the UK. And, um, and I was then the first to be born in this country. I, I've heard you talk about Bradford uh, in many of your interviews and I'm not too familiar with Bradford. But what's, <laughs> uh, what's, uh, and it sounds like, you know, it's a really um, you know special place. What makes Bradford so special? I was having this conversation with someone, and the only way you can compare it is that so Bradford a hundred years ago was the equivalent to like New York or uh, London. So it created a third of the world's wool, and it had the biggest silk mill in the whole world, and so the city was kind of this kind of textile mecca for Europe, if not Europe, for the whole world. Um, and it was because of the land, um, the weather, the water, it was the ideal conditions to, to make wool during the Industrial Revolution. Flash forward 100 years later, it lost its industry. And my dad was one of the last workforce um, in 88 to still work in the um, textile mills. And after all of that was taken away, the kind of city was left with this kind of stage set of these beautiful Victorian Edwardian buildings, but not the economy to kind of sustain it. Um, so what's left now is this really strange, beautiful um, playground of people and cultures, um, which makes it really interesting um, as a place to live in. I think it deteriorated for a very, very long time and only in the last two, three years is it picking up again. It did lose its way after the mills all shut down. 
Definitely. I mean, you live in Bradford as well, Deba, right? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. It, it it sounds like maybe like a, a UK version of Detroit. I think Detroit uh, had a lot of that sort of glory in it. It had, a glory, had its glory days um, early in the century, and now it's really just downtrodden and uh, but now, uh, this recently in the last few years, there's been a lot of investment, and hopefully, it'll come back. It, yeah, it's the same in Bradford. So they're looking at the arts as a way of revitalizing the economy. So there's been a lot of investment in theatre companies, in a literature festival, um, in the bid to become the capital of culture for 2025. Um, it's got you know a wealth of hit. It's got a wealth of um, kind of. Uh, literature literati and artists um one of the most famous artists in the world david hockney do you know him no shing have you heard of him i've heard of him that's right and you know there are so many alumni from the city um that are working around the world and and so it's beginning to kind of become a magnet again for the arts um, which makes it a really exciting time to be in Bradford right now. I, I don't know if this is true, but the Alhambra Theatre that we have, is that the only theatre outside of London to like stage West End musicals? It's one of the only theatres outside of London that has uh, a reputation uh, or a repertoire for companies, uh, for shows like The Lion King or Phantom of the Opera. So it houses the big West End musicals. Um, yeah. It's not the only, there are, there's one in um, Manchester, and right. one in Edinburgh, um, but yeah, definitely in the, in the north uh, or in Yorkshire, it's the only theatre that can... So I think one of the strong points of our city um, it is the Alhambra Theatre, which is, it, like you said, it houses, which is equivalent to the New York Broadway shows. So they have big shows on here, right? In our, in our city, which we're really, really lucky to have. Yeah, and for half the price as well. <laughs> oh, wow. What's your favourite theatre production uh, that you've taken part in? Um, so one of my favourite theatre productions that I took part in was a show that I did uh, for three years, actually. Um, and it was a show called The Chef Show, right? And it was a, it's what's called a two-hander. So there were two actors in it. Um, and it was a father and son dynamic and it was set in a Bangladeshi restaurant oh. and so over the night uh, over the course of one night we we meet all the different characters in the restaurant like you know we have a hen party an engagement um a bereavement a first date we have the chef the kitchen porter so we had 17 14 characters in total sorry and all 14 characters were played by two actors um and that toured around the UK and it was quite a special show because it um it only toured around rural areas around the UK. So it's, what's, it's what we call a rural touring show. Um, and then it played in some cities as well. And as part, the reason why it's called the Chef Show was because every night, whichever village that we went to, we had an actual chef on stage um, who, would, who would cook on stage to create the kind of smells and the kind of um, atmosphere of a restaurant. Um, and this chef, we'd, we'd only get to meet on the day of the performance. And then throughout the show, we'd be kind of improvising with him. It was mm. terrifying and it was amazing. Um, and and it was, it, it was it, the, the, the main reason why it was really special for me was because um, 
last year it got to tour in cities as well and it actually came to the Alhambra theater so the Alhambra also has like a studio theater on the side it's like a 200 seater studio theater and it came to that and for the first time in the history of like my life my mom came to the theater and watched the show and it was just amazing she sat on the front row I mean she didn't understand English but she was able to kind of follow along with the action and she sat there in her niqab on the front row <laughs> watching this theatre show. It was just so special for me. Oh, wow. That Thank sounds you. amazing. And, I, and, and to think about it, you, I've never really thought about it, but if you are working in sort of a restaurant setting, I guess you do overhear all these conversations and there's always this um, interesting dialogue going on that you can play around with. Definitely. And the thing that... The thing that was really groundbreaking for the audience was that they got to learn actually that most restaurants in this country are owned by Bangladeshis. Um, I think it's about 70 or 80 percent of restaurants, um, well especially in rural areas, it's like you know 99 percent of the restaurants are owned by Bangladeshis, but because they're called Indian restaurants, the, the show was an opportunity for them to meet their local chef, but also kind of give an insight into a world which is actually really misrepresented, both, you know, in the real world and on stage as well. In, in New York City, is there many, I know you've got a huge variety of restaurants going on, but is there a lot of popular Bengali restaurants? So, uh, you know, I, this is a, I, something really that's interesting is it's similar where they're called, a lot of them are called Indian restaurants, but they're owned by Bengalis. Yeah. yeah. The, the it's, I actually had recently had met somebody super interesting, and it's a really interesting story. I met this comedian who, um, who his name is Alauddin Ullah. He, he's a, he's like an old school Bengali comedian. He was he he was really popular in the '90s. He was actually the first Bengali person I saw on television. Wow. And I met I met him, and then about a year ago, I just reached out to him, and I had I had uh, coffee with him at this diner. Yeah, he was really nice. But he told me this really interesting story. His dad was one of the first people to come to New York, uh, I think in the 40s. Um, and they um, opened up these restaurants. Um, and at that time, they just, you know, they opened up Indian restaurants. Um, they just called them Indian restaurants because calling a Bangladeshi restaurant really wouldn't bring anyone in. So they called them Indian restaurants. But the really, really fascinating thing is, is this. They, and he had pictures to prove it, and he had articles to prove it, which is this. Um, this is around the time um, the civil rights movements were, movement was really taking off. And Malcolm X and uh, the Nation of Islam, they would all congregate at these restaurants that, the yeah. were, owned by, that they were owned by Bangladeshis. And he actually had pictures of... Uh, his uncles and his dads um, meeting with Malcolm X and wow. other people of the Nation of Islam, and this is the most interesting thing. It actually made me got me really tear-eyed. If you've ever uh, followed Malcolm X or read his book, there was a point. There's a point of, of of Malcolm X's life where he realized that what the Nation of Islam was teaching him, uh, and especially uh, Elijah Muhammad, what what he was teaching him was really not the right. Um, you know, teachings of Islam, and Elijah Muhammad was really kind of making himself to be the prophet, and 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 so forth. But there was a point where he actually decided to go to Hajj, and uh, uh, Alauddin Ullah um, explained to me that it was actually the Bengali people in the restaurants, uh, the Bangladeshis, the owners of these restaurants, that convinced Malcolm 
to go to a Hajj, to find to find the real like the real Islam. And 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 Malcolm X went on to go to Hajj, and then he he went to Hajj, and he saw Muslims that were you know white, blue eyed, um, and you know these are people that Elijah Muhammad was preaching to be the devil, um, and that that was a part of the Nation of Islam's message, and it was you know obviously wrong and. Malcolm X came back from that, you know, and he had a revelation. And then, and that's actually ultimately what also got him killed because he, you know, came back and he t- kind of turned against the nation of Islam and then eventually got mm-hmm. killed. Mm-hmm. Wow. Sorry. Well, that's a film or a radio play. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry to hijack, hijack your interview, but I just, I, I felt it was really interesting speaking with Alauddin about that. And, and so to answer your question, a lot of the same thing as India, a lot of them, they were called Indian restaurants and they still are. Um, I mean, they're called Indian restaurants. And I think in some neighborhoods, like Bengali neighborhoods here, they are called Bangladeshi restaurants. But I think generally, like in Manhattan, most of the restaurants are still called Indian restaurants. I mean, it's the same in the UK, except for in uh, Brick Lane in London, mm. um, yeah. which is this stretch of Bangladesh restaurants. In the rest of the UK, you know, even in Bradford, I can't even think of a single Bangladeshi restaurant. Can you? Not that comes straight to my head, no. No, no. which is a shame. And, you know, I was having this conversation with DVD the other day. I was like, wouldn't, wouldn't it be amazing to set up like a cafe or a lounge that, that completely just catered in Bing- Bengali cuisine? Me, me and Kamal were just joking and coming up with a menu and we just came up with all sorts of foods that we could serve. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is such a, I, I was, there's such a difference too, right? You know, like uh, Bangladeshi cuisine versus Indian cuisine. There's such a distinct difference. And it needs to be celebrated. So then, Kamal, you, you, you did acting for a while and then you went into writing. Um, you studied writing, got a master's in um, television writing. Um, and what are you doing with that these days? So that's been a really strange journey. So I'd, I'd got a scholarship to do um, a master's um, after I did my, after I spent a year or two working as an actor. And um, at that point, I wasn't quite sure which avenue I was going to go down. So I did this master's uh, up in Glasgow. Um, and then actually I was going to move, move to Glasgow permanently, but then because of per- personal circumstances, I had to come back to Bradford. And so kind of being back home was actually a really good move because it, it rooted me in, in kind of family and, and having that kind of stability around me. And so my first commission, I'd got my first commission straight after I did my master's um, and it was a commission for theatre. Um, it was a, a play that I wrote and then I did a couple of theatre plays um, and then that led on to, I, I then won a competition to write um, a piece for BBC Radio 3. Um, and then from that, I got called back. And then, uh, and then I had four other commissions for BBC Radio 4. Um, and it just kept, it kind of kept snowballing in a, in a really lovely way, where suddenly I found myself kind of now working almost full time as a writer. And... My kind of super objective, what is always going to be to, to work for, write for screen, whether that's television or for cinema. But I'm kind of going on this journey of writing for other mediums to kind of learn the craft. 
because like with anything it's about the practice of doing it um, and thankfully I've been able to practice it by working in theatre and in radio um, and so having had several commissions for radio and making work that has gone out internationally um, I've now found myself coming to the medium screen um, that I kind of wanted to work in um, so this year well, actually, I'm still working on it. Um, I've just worked on a screenplay that um, I helped to write as a script consultant. Um, and this is for a feature film that will be out uh, in the cinemas, hopefully by the end of this year. Um, and Does this screenplay... Um because I've noticed a lot of the pieces of radio work that you do does have a theme of Bangladesh in it or some part of your roots in it. Um, well, does the screenplay have that too? Definitely. I mean, like, I mean, I think the difference between being a writer and being an artist is that as a writer, you kind of just do jobs um, and you kind of essentially just like a gun fire and you kind of do the job and you move on. But for me, it's about being an artist whereby... I invest a part of who I am in the work that I do. Um, yes, all of my, a lot of my radio work has been uh, thematically about, you know, set either in Bradford or um, deals with Bangladeshi characters or British Bangladeshi characters. Um, and amazingly, this screenplay that I've worked on um, is a film um, that's set in Bradford. Oh, well, there you go. So these are uh, on the radio, these are fictional shows that are on the radio? Yeah, so I've currently got a, um, and the link will be in the podcast, um, a, a radio play called Father's Land in Mother Tongue, um, which is a BBC Radio 4 45-minute afternoon drama um, about a girl trying to kind of find who she is or um, go back to a country that, you know, she's never felt like she's been part of. Um, and with radio drama, um, you know, it, the, B, the BBC kind of lead in terms of that, in terms of creating work that, that goes out internationally and, and that should be available to listen in America as well um, through the iPlayer link. And yeah, so primarily my work has just been in radio and now I'm beginning to kind of go into working um, for screen. That's very interesting because I didn't know uh, dra radio dramas were a thing. I, I don't know if I, I don't know if that's a popular uh, form of entertainment here. Is I, I, I could be wrong. That's really interesting. So it kind of it, it, I mean it, it's not that it started off in the UK, but the BBC kind of capitalized on it earlier on where they used to, because radio was the only form of entertainment um, and, and drama, and there's a, there's a huge history of drama in this country, they kind of put the two things together and invented kind of radio drama, which is essentially a play with a script and actors, but with no visuals. Um, and the BBC, they make about 300 a year. Wow. Um, and these go out on, on um, national radio. And a single, so an afternoon drama that's about 45 minutes long, um, gets about a million and a half listeners in the wow. UK. 
Wow. Um, so just just to like explain the BBC, the BBC stands for British Broadcasting Corporation. What's the C? Corporation, yeah. And they're the, it's like they're the biggest channel in the UK. Um, I don't know what it is. I don't know what your equivalent is in, in New York, but they are the biggest um, sort of entertainment channel here in the UK. They also do television drama as well because there's BBC America. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, quite famously, they recently did Killing Eve, which is a television series that was a co-production between BBC UK and BBC America. Yeah, recently I've noticed that there are podcasts uh, that are that, that are drama podcasts that have become very popular. There's a Wolverine podcast that I listen to, and it's drama. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. And, and yeah. I didn't know, uh, but the concept of radio, um, you know, drama, that's really interesting. It's kind of... Uh, yeah, it's kind of like bringing back, you know, some uh, popular, uh, um, you know, method from, you know, years ago. I think that's really interesting. And the thing with radio drama, it's such an accessible form nowadays because we're constantly plugged in with headphones. Yeah. So it kind of just, it's kind of, it's kind of gone, gone through this renaissance whereby kind of television and cinema has kind of gone into the foreground and audio, drama, podcasts, music you know, is beginning to lead the way in terms of entertainment, I think. Yeah. So what, uh, what else are you working on right now? So the, the film, the screenplay that I helped to write, um, it's called Ali and Ava, um, and it's a love story set in Bradford, um, uh, an interracial love story. And um, so that, from that, I kind of, and working with the director, so it's, it's written and directed by um, a woman called Claire Bernard, who in this country is, you know, she's a BAFTA-nominated, international award-winning director, and um, and that collaboration came completely by accident. Um, she'd actually listened to one of my radio plays, and then we'd got in contact, and and then she asked me to kind of come on board on her film as a script consultant. Um, so we're just in the final phase of finishing that. Um, so we've just had a, a, a final lockdown of the picture um, and then obviously the pandemic happened so it's kind mm-hmm. of just on a hiatus at the moment because um, it was meant to do the festivals in Cannes and Toronto um, but it's all been delayed but kind of having worked on that film for a year and a half I thought you know what I'm gonna try giving um, writing um, a screenplay a go so I've just written um, a short film, a 15-minute short film for the BFI. Um, so the BFI in this country is the British Film Institute, um, and they're the kind of organisation who kind of nurture young talent um, in moving into writing for screen and for cinema. Um, so I've just written my first BFI short film, um, and we're just in working out the producer. Um, I've got a director attached to it. Um, and again, it's a it's a short film that's going to be set in Bradford and filmed in Bradford as well. Well, and at this point, you uh, you have enough uh, connections and people that you know that that can help you get these things launched. Oh, definitely. Um, having worked on the on the feature film on somebody else's feature, uh, it's been invaluable in terms of you know the people that you meet and and how given it's, it was like work experience having an insight into a world. You know, because for me, no one in my family is a writer or a performer. So I'm kind of having to kind of break new grounds and having to learn how these things work without a precedence. Um, and and part of this journey has been about, you know, making the connections with with the right people 
um, and, and kind of them helping you along that journey. Hey, one thing you guys talked about earlier, and I made a note of it, is a hen party. That's not really a thing here. So I yeah. want you guys to explain that because I, I didn't know what that was either. And I was watching an episode of The Dragon's Den, which is, <laughs> is my, one of my favorite shows. And I, it's much better than Shark's Tank, Shark Tank. And they were talking about a hen party. And I was like, what the hell is a hen party? So I Googled it. So I know what it is. But what's a hen party? So a hen, a hen party is basically um, like a bridal shower, I guess, is your equivalent. Um, so it's... It's for the bride. It's with her friends bef- when she, before she gets married. Um, so it's just a party um, with her girlfriends um, celebrating that she's no longer going to be a single woman. Mm, yeah, so basically like a bachelor party. Yeah. yeah, it's an excuse for people to get drunk and <laughs> have a wild I've noticed in the US, you guys have a lot of celebrations. Like, it won't just be a bachelorette party, then there'll be a bridal shower, then there'll be something else. And then there'll be about five wedding parties. And there's always a celebration, which is nice, but it's a lot. Well, it's this thing, right? I mean, I mean, this wedding, there's like six, seven events or this event. I don't know if it's a Desi thing or an American thing. Yeah, yeah, we like to celebrate. It's probably a fusion of cultures because, you know, Asians like to prolong their festivities, don't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so now, I mean, the gender reveal party is an example where yeah. um, it's been introduced in the UK. Now now people in the UK oh are doing it. It was never a thing five years ago. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. It's interesting how creative some people get with it, though. I find it, I think that's cool. With the gender reveal stuff. Have you seen some of the gender reveal stuff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so do you, uh, do you go back to Bangladesh, Kamal? Have you, have you been back? Oh no, I hate to confess. I've never been. Really? <laughs> I've never ah. been. <laughs> do it's I actually... ever qualify to call myself Bengali if I've never been to Bangladesh? Uh, no, you're fine. I mean, I've, I've been back three times since I came, so it's not like I go every year either. Diva, you've been back, right? Yeah, I've been back, but, uh, I've been about four times, four or five times, uh, but the last time was nearly 10 years ago now. Wow. Noshin, you've been back, I'm assuming? Yeah, I, I went back last year. And it's, it's interesting, the, the time before that was 10 years ago, and there was such a huge difference, like in development, in, in Taka at least. Yeah. It's like, yeah. wait, did I, did I come here before? Because it looks so completely changed and new. Yeah. Yeah, even my, even my dad, he's, he gets completely lost. Uh, because it's very, it's like completely different from what it was 30 years ago. It's, it's massive. It's just so much more crowded, so much more people, so much more pollution. Yeah. It's, it's very difficult to get around, but yeah, come on. I mean, it's, it's, it is an interesting experience going back. I feel, um, you know, just to, you know, see, I'm sure you've heard your parents talk about the homeland, right? Has, has your dad talked about uh, uh, endlessly to you? Always, 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 always. And he spent most of his life, um buying land so that when he was no longer here we'd have some security back in bangladesh yeah um and so yeah so in bangladesh there's a piece of land with my name on it 
<laughs> which I've never seen. Listen, you better go and claim that because you're going to have like third cousins and fourth cousins and claim that thing and you're not, you're not going to have any say over that. This is the nightmare that we're, we're kind of going through at the moment because um, dad passed away and so now there's all this land that's now being fought over between his brothers and his cousins and everybody. So it's... Wow. I, I hear that all the time now. It's that like that's like the new thing. All of my friends are going through, you know, having to deal with land issues in Bangladesh. Well, it's because the first generation who came, my parents, you know, they, they set this up and now the second generation us yeah. are now having to kind of deal with yeah. the consequences of all of that. Yeah, and most of us are useless there, right? Like I go there and like what what do I I can't do anything. So, you know, somebody tells me, go, go right, I'll go right, like without just even knowing where I'm getting, being led to. Uh, mm. And so we're expected to go to these offices and figure out how to turn over land. I mean, it's impossible for us to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, part, one of the reasons, every time I've tried to go, actually, something has happened and stopped me from going. But from a young age, one of the biggest things that completely terrified me about Bangladesh were all these stories about jinns. Mm. Familiar oh. with, I know so what jinns like, are, but I don't know about any of the stories. Go ahead, tell me, tell me. Yeah, so like spirits of like, you know, being possessed or, you know, potentially having like curses put upon you. Um, and so that put the fear in me from a young age. And even now I'm still terrified of going to Bangladesh. Wow. We've all, and we've come back fine. So I think it'd be okay. <laughs> it always <laughs> happens in some like deep village or rural area though yeah yeah, yeah you know i just feel like it's probably like a tree leaf or something <laughs> i i guess is it like i've heard stories too but i i don't i don't know i don't know if i i don't know if but, um, i i went to, my parents took me to bangladesh when i was very young so maybe like three or four two or three even i don't remember that but when i went when i was nine ten it was life-changing the experience of this complete different culture, um, tradition, people, um, the atmosphere, it was, it completely changed my life. So I feel like you've still got that experience to feel and have if you haven't been yet. Yeah. Well, when I wrote my radio play, I mean, it's set in Bangladesh and part of me writing that was actually to go out to Bangladesh to do research and then write this story. Um, but then what had happened was I was supposed to go with my cousin and then he dropped out and then I had no one to go with and then I had a deadline to finish my work so it kind of all fell through um, which is a shame because yeah you're right Diva I mean I'm sure it will be one of my favourite films not about Bangladesh but it's a film called The Darjeeling Limited by Wes Anderson so it's yeah a, I love that yeah yeah so it's these three characters who go on this life changing journey to India um, and and I saw that when I was at university and I was like, you know, what? I'd love to go one of those life changing train journeys. Um, Cause you can get a train actually that goes from Delhi to Dhaka. Is that correct? I don't know how long that would take though. It takes 24 hours. Yeah. So I researched it all. Um, and it's like five pounds or it's like 25 pounds um, in first class. Um, so, you know, the dream was to fly out to Delhi, go on the train and then get the train all the way across to Dhaka. But that hasn't happened yet, obviously. Is Wes Anderson one of your favorite uh, uh, directors? Definitely. I mean, he is a complete artist and a complete author in his work. 
um, you know, down from the music to the visuals to the characters to the actors that he casts. Yeah. Um, there's something really architectural about his work as well um, that, that, that really kind of pleases me. Um, yeah, he's got a new one coming out, actually. It'll be coming out this year. What's it called? The I can't remember, but it's set in France. Um, okay. But a bit of trivia, though. Back in 2012, I auditioned for the Grand Budapest Hotel. I was just going to say that to you because I was just going to say that to you because when I showed a picture of you to my wife, my wife thought you were that the the bellboy. Yeah, and I was like, and I and I then I googled it, and then I was like, no, it's not him, but he's um, he's still great. But you, but you, you, you look like him. Ah, oh, do you know what? that is? That is one of those things that I'll, I'll forever just take to my grave with me that I never got cast as a lobby boy because um, actually, when I auditioned for it, it was meant to be Johnny Depp was meant to be the hotel owner, not mm-hmm. Ralph Fiennes. Um. And that would have been another dream come true to like work with Johnny Depp. Wow. Uh, but yeah, no, the lobby boy. So I auditioned for. <laughs> wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not a huge movie buff, but I do like his movies. I love dogs is one of my favorite. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And no, his earlier stuff is better. I think. I mean, Grand Budapest, I wasn't a massive fan of, to be honest. Yeah. So um, what's next? You talked about some of the stuff that you're working on. What's, what's next uh, coming up for you? So uh, as I was saying, I'm working on this short film um, that we're hopefully going to be shooting um, in August, September. Um, and then, because how it is in this country, you've got to, in order to go on to write in a feature, uh, a screenplay for the cinema, you have to have a certain number of like, Hours like it's like you know being an architect. You've got to, you've got to do your kind of training first. So the training to become a screenwriter is making short films, um, usually around fifteen minutes long. Um, and then once you've got a couple of those under your belt, they will then give you the money to, to work on on a feature. So I'm already thinking about what that feature could be once I've got my short film, this short film made. Um, but yeah, that 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 is. That's happening. Um, I'm also working on, on a stage play as well. So I'm writing a play for theatre. Um, I've got a deadline for tomorrow. <laughs> wow. Um, but it's been really Before, hard. Sorry, Gordon, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's, it's been really, I don't know if it's the same with you guys, but I've been finding it really difficult trying to be creative during this period. Have you found the same? Kind of having well, like, it's a it's a different environment to get used to right now for I think everyone. Um, so yeah, you think it because you're saving more time being at home and not having distractions outside of the home um, that you might work better. But I've had the same effect. Like, I mean, I'm not working on my regular work right now. I only had an assignment to finish, and it took me longer. I feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I, I definitely realize that I need I need deadlines, I need structure um, to get things done. Like right now, I don't have any sort of structure at all. I mean, I can wake up at two p.m. one day and five p.m. another day. Like there's no, and I, I think I, I need to have deadlines and I need to have 
like things because I also I don't get anything done. But creativeness, yeah, I I think I've probably lost a little bit of that um, in this time. I mean, it's just it's it feels just, like luxury, doesn't it? Being a creative person or working in the creative industries pre COVID nineteen, it 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 almost felt like a privilege to be part of that industry, and kind of now you know we are dealing with the basics of life and just trying to survive and so that is the most important thing right now and therefore this kind of the whole kind of creative um world seems to have kind of disappeared momentarily yeah, i would i would push back a little bit and say that during this time a lot of us are resorting to netflix and reading books and enjoying more of the arts and so in a way the arts were seen as a luxury before or something that you know you had to carve out time for and now it's our lifeline now that everything around us is falling apart outside the house in the world that is yeah no i completely agree with you there but the the, the reality of it is that you know it stopped being made so you know my friends who are directors writers nothing is being produced right now and so being in the industry you kind of feel a sudden betrayal where you've got people who are sat at home watching Netflix and you know movies and occupying themselves with with drama but the reality of it is that that drama is not being made or being invested in it's this really weird space to be in right now and so for me I'm just like you know what is my worth as a as an artist if, if suddenly that industry doesn't exist or you know fails fail to exist at the moment you know even my friends who are performers you know, they're sat at home acting because jobs are on hold at the moment which is you know it's really terrifying so the hope is like you said you know we we reframe or reconsider the worth of the artist because times like this they are the most valuable asset what are your thoughts on netflix and its impact on the movie industry uh, a lot of movies are now being released on netflix and extraction which takes some part of it takes place in Bangladesh and if you've seen it yeah i mean i don't know so there's a big debate going on at the moment whether things um cinema um releases should be released um on demand as well at the same time so there's been a massive fallout actually whereby uh, the audience and amc cinemas are saying if you are going to stream something first then we're not going to show it in our cinemas um so universal uh, uh you know the the you know the the biggest culprit of this at the moment whereby they've said that we're going to stop releasing things um in cinemas first which is such a shame because the whole beauty of the art form is that it's this kind of relationship with you and the screen with no other disturbances you know you can't you can't go on your phone you can't you know you can't be texting or be on twitter it's just that that direct connection um and 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 i think that will always hopefully that that connection we'll always want because you know i don't know about you but me going to like when you go to cinema it's almost like it's almost like being in a book or something you kind of lose yourself from reality and it'd be such a it's shame it's definitely a, a a different experience to watching a film on a big screen in the cinema or theater as opposed to sitting and watching it at home yeah yeah it's different yeah the convenience factor is there for home but i agree there's certain things i i saw the irishman um on netflix and i i i'm a huge fan of mobster movies and i feel like i would have enjoyed it 
I don't know if more is the word, but definitely differently in the theater. Well, you've yeah. got to remember how these things are made. So when things are made for Netflix, you know, the screen is that big, basically the screen of this computer screen. So everything has to fit within that screen. But, you know, in the cinema, the screen is that big. So it's about, it's, it's about the landscape as well as about those characters as well. And you kind of, we kind of miss that when things are made for screen. You know, it's why a lot of soap operas, uh, essentially, you know, two, two heads just talking to each other because that's all that can essentially fit on a, on a screen. Mm. But, you know, if you think about some of even the Grand Budapest Hotel, you know, it'd be such a loss for that to have been made for Netflix because we wouldn't have got that, we wouldn't have got that same sense of world or architectural space. Mm. Have you seen, um, I mentioned earlier, have you seen The Extraction, the, the movie that was shot in Bangladesh? Have no. you heard of it? Is that on Netflix? It is. And so there's a lot of controversy with that movie because it is, uh, parts of it is shot in Bangladesh. And they, uh, uh, from what I understand, I didn't verify this, but from what I understand, they didn't hire any Bangladeshis, uh, not one. Uh, and there's a lot of people that are um, playing Bangladeshis, but they didn't hire one Bangladeshi. And also they, they really portrayed Dhaka as like this, like drug capital, um, which, uh, which a lot of people are angry about. Is this the film? There's also another... Sorry. So is this the film with Chris Helmsworth? Yes. Oh, yes, no. I, the film was originally called Dhaka. Oh really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that. So, okay, so okay, yes, I know the film. So the film was originally called Dakar. And, um, yeah, when it was um, being made, um, there there was there was a lot of about, about the fact that you know none of the actors, the lead, for example, is a white American. Um, yeah. So that's why they couldn't call it Dakar anymore because it, it was a complete betrayal to you know what that place represented. What you were saying, Noshin? I was saying that it's it, kind of what you were saying about a white male lead, that the movie is basically a white knight trope of here's a white male savior coming in to save this, um, this Indian gangster's son from these Bengali gangsters. So, yeah. so, so my, my thoughts about that is that, I mean, it, it's an American film, so I, I, can, I, can, I can understand that. I mean, if you, are, if you go to, like, Korea, their films, their films are, you know, the, the protagonist is a Korean dude saving people. So, like, I feel like that's okay, but I just really, the fact that all these people that are Bangladeshi in the film, they're Bangladeshi in the film, but, you know, they could have easily found some Bangladeshi actors to play them. I mean, like, the... Head, I'm not going to give it away, but like the uh, the criminal in the movie, he's uh, he's he's supposed to be Bangladeshi. He's like the b- drug lord in Bangladesh. He's like the biggest drug lord in Bangladesh. He's uh, he's Indian, and the way he speaks Bangla, like I I mean I'm not an expert on I'm not a linguist, but you can tell that he's not a native Bangladeshi speaker. Like the way he said lagan, like he's, he's there was a word he said. I was just like started laughing because it was just exactly the way. Uh, you would say Lagan the movie, but he wanted like it, it but it did not sound like Bengali at all. Uh, and uh, I, that that's, that's frustrating. I mean, find like one Bangladeshi person to play, at least even just like the cops and stuff. They were in Bangladeshi, like they were every single person was Indian. I think that's such a good point. They could have easily, and especially as it was shot in Bangladesh, they yeah. should have 
recruited some local talent there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think they, they barely spend time in Bangladesh because of the fog. But the, I think my favorite part was when um, Chris Hemsworth actually said a Bangla line and he said, Bromandao. Bromandao. Like, give me, give me yeah. proof. And it was, it was like, he had to do a double take. You were like, wait, did he actually say that? <laughs> he like rewind 15 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I actually didn't, I didn't finish it, but I, I don't think it was, it was a bad movie, but I mean, but it was, what did you think, Lashin? Did you like it overall? Like if you were just like step back and if let's say you were in Bangladesh, what did you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, objectively, plot line wasn't very engaging to me. Okay. So I would give it like a 6.5 out of 10. Okay. <laughs> Okay, but the action was, was yeah. Good. The action was that so far that are the parts that I've seen. The action action is is good. But I mean, look, they could have easily casted somebody like Kamal. He could have gone back to Bangladesh, and you know he could have played the drug, you know, kingpin, <laughs> and would have spoken better Bangla <laughs> than the Indian guy. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> would have been perfect. Yeah, I mean, in your sort of journey and along the way, and you said you met a lot of people when you did the screenplay writing um have you come across other bengali actors or writers well um in short no i i actually i i don't personally have any other friends um who are bangladeshi in the industry um because there are there's you know there's probably a handful of us um, in terms of writers or performers. Um, saying that, um, I've just been working on a television show for the BBC about, you know, do you know the programme Great British Bake Off? My wife watches it, yeah. Right, okay. So in this country, in 2015, um, a Bangladeshi woman called Nadi Hussain won the Great British Bake Off. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was the most watched television um, event of that year. Um, and it was groundbreaking for a woman of Bangladeshi descent, you know, a hijab-wearing woman to win this British baking contest. Um, so from that, she became, you know, she baked the, uh, the cake for the Queen's birthday. Um, she, she's become this kind of A-list star in this country. Um, so we, um, so we're currently working on, um, she, she wrote these series of novels, um, which they're turning into a, a BBC drama. Um, and so I've been part of that development team. And what they've been really conscious of is having actual Bangladeshis on that team um, or women or Muslim women. Um, but, you know, I'm sad, uh, it was such a shame to say that I was the only Bangladeshi on that team. Um, all the other women were either dual heritage or, or white. So, yeah. You know, part of the reason that film, the Chris Helmsworth film, bombed so badly was because nobody on that production team, I imagine, was of Bangladeshi origin or descent or understanding of the culture. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone out and cast non-Bengalis in a film. <laughs> well, you, you talked about earlier about uh, you being a, a script consultant. I mean, did they not have a script consultant? I mean... The, does in every film and uh yeah I, I, I don't know it depends you know it depends and this is a question of authenticity and representation you know you've got people like Riz Ahmed um big Hollywood actor who who's been banging on about representation and authenticity in that you get people like that from those backgrounds into those projects because you know what they offer is 
is, is tacit knowledge, it's kind of lived knowledge that a researcher will never be able to offer. Um, and, you know, part of that problem is that there aren't many of us in those positions to be getting those jobs in the first place. So I'm glad that you're, you're there and you can make an impression on, you know, Bangladesh's behalf. And I hope there's more in the future. Definitely, because, you know, there isn't, you know, there's quite a few, you know, you've got Riz Ahmed, who's Pakistani, who's a really famous actor. You've got Mira Nair, who's a famous, um, you know, South Asian, a female director. Gurinder Chadha, um, you know, who's Indian, Punjabi, I think, um, background. But there isn't, there isn't a British Bangladeshi uh, writer or performer who's kind of got to that, that kind of almost A-list status yet. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping I'm, I'm not the only one and that there are other people out there who are considering this as a career because, like you said, it's about representation and it's about, you know, showing that we've got a lot to give. There's some small, um, there's some, uh, some a lot, there's a lot of energy in New York uh, from the balancing community and building and creating films of that represent our culture. We just had uh, the actress from this short film called Dawat. I don't know if you've seen it, but they're they're doing really cool things. We have we have the producer on uh, I think next week. Um, but yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of stuff going on in New York um, uh, from Bangladesh. So it's exciting to see. Uh, but uh, really ha- happy that you came on. I mean, I feel like we can go on forever. But um, really excited to uh, I, I, in doing the research for for the podcast. I feel like I really got to know a lot about you, and also just like felt really really excited about reading about all the cool things that you're doing. So I really want to thank you for coming on. Oh, great. And I'll let you know when Ali and David comes out. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll share that. And if you're in New York, obviously, we'd love to meet you. Yeah, no, I'd love to come. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Bye. I do it for my people, always in my thoughts. I got to be honest with diamonds and pearls. Yeah, yeah. Bengal is in New York, all over the world. Uh, it's the bony show. Uh, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live. From the slang we spit to the gangs we with. It doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh. I say, hey, come on. Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live. From the